Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. Hello and welcome to another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. This is Richard Lummis, I'm here with Tom Fox for another discussion on how to improve our leadership skills by learning from others, drawing lessons from many sources, including history, fiction, and business writing. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. Uh, Today we're going to begin a series on leadership qualities of some of the early presidents of the United States. And today's topic is going to be Andrew Jackson, seventh president, served during a very tumultuous period, both socially and uh, economically and and politically. In fact, researching for this episode of 12 O'Clock High, I was struck by the contemporary feel of, of some of the controversies he was involved in. Tom, where do you want to start? Uh, Richard, I'd like to start by really echoing your last uh, thought that uh, I was surprised how uh, much the controversies, leadership styles, and um, events and outcomes really mirrored many of the debates that we're still having today. Uh, one of the um, things we I hope we can talk about here is the uh, non-renewal of the bank charter, which was one of the seminal events of uh, the Jacksonian presidency, but how that debate on federal centralized bank versus a decentralized bank has really gone on for the the life of of this republic. And it really struck me that uh, it seemed uh, that the debate uh, turned or at least continued the debate that began with Jefferson and Hamilton, uh, led to the creation of the Fed, uh, in the debates around uh, 1890s and the first decade of the uh, 20th century, um, up through the uh, the Great Depression, and indeed uh, even today. So uh, you're absolutely right. The um, contemporary nature of, of a lot of these events, uh, I think, will provide us some interesting fodder today. Um, the, the one thing that I got from uh, reading about Jackson and researching in preparation for this episode was really his perseverance. Um, Whatever ideal he was committed to, whether it was on the battlefield in the uh, 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 Creek and Cherokee Wars, the Seminole Wars, the nullification crisis, the uh, bank charter crisis, or any number of other uh, crises, uh, he persevered. He made his mind up and he stuck to it. And that may be something that we really don't talk about enough as a business leader. I know we have certainly talked about flexibility. We've talked about meeting needs, uh, rather meeting uh, changing circumstances and being agile and nimble to react to market conditions. But perhaps uh, having that determination, perhaps having that uh, perseverance, I I would hazard to go as far as saying having backbone. Nevertheless, um, if, if uh, to quote Davy Crockett, if you believe you're right, you're right. And, uh, you know, stick to it. Uh, for those of you who remember Fess Parker um, and, and his role as Davy Crockett. So uh, the, the bank crisis, I know we both thought, uh, read about this, and you've studied it uh, a fair amount. It seemed to me that uh, this was not a debate about general economic theory that you and I might have today. It was a debate about something else. It was a debate about the nature of the then nascent U.S. Uh, political experiment, the Republic. And that debate started in the Constitutional Convention. That debate continued in the first administration under Washington, particularly around uh, Hamilton and Jefferson, on should there be a national bank? Should there be a centralized bank? Should the bank uh, have the, uh, the basically the U.S. government species, the gold reserves in one bank? 
And um, I think uh, to a large extent, Hamilton won that argument, even if he wasn't around to see the fruits of it uh, because he was killed in a duel with Aaron Burr. Nevertheless, uh, by the time Jackson um, took his seat at the presidency, and we have to recall that he was actually defeated by John Quincy Adams. Um, well, now, wait. <laughs> in, in, an, in an election that went to the House of Representatives. Um, so Jackson had been talking and thinking about this for quite some time. And so uh, after 1832, he made it very clear that uh, he was not going to renew the bank's charter. And he, he basically had a an economic war with Nicholas Biddle, the head of the bank, uh, to... Um, to take control of it and not to um, renew its charter in the face of some very, I found very persuasive arguments and uh, arguments made by uh, some very influential people at that time. So I pontificated quite a bit there. Uh, What might your thoughts be? Well, I I take exception to some of it. The, um, a couple of things really struck me when I was looking at this. The first was that between the first election that, as you pointed out, went to the House of Representatives and resulted in the, well, his, his opponents would argue the appointment of John Quincy Adams as a result of the corrupt bargain. Um, between that election and the subsequent election, the number of uh, votes in the election more than tripled, um, showing the rise of uh, populist passion, I think. And the other thing is the Bank of the United States crisis, you're absolutely correct about its, its economic importance, but in some ways I think it also reflects the, uh, the growing class differences. And Biddle represented what you would call the Wall Street elite of the day, even though he was in uh, Philadelphia. Um, and so you had these basically money managers and the uh, the working class people felt that they were being totally shut out and uh, and taken advantage of by these people. So I think in part it was an issue of personalities. Uh, as uh, as I, I would agree, uh, an issue of personalities. And I guess I would see that as an extension of the um, uh, federalism or federalist and democratic republicans debate on uh, a country of yeoman farmers versus a uh, more uh, – if not autocratic, centralized form of government that Hamilton um, tried to uh, put forward. So um, if there's a difference there, maybe the difference in the sheet of paper or two, nevertheless, I think you're absolutely right. There was a class aspect to this, which cannot be discounted. And um, the other thing that struck me was I had frankly forgotten about the uh, veto and the speech around the veto. And I know I'd studied that, uh, but um, what struck me was this was not um, Jackson making a decision to do something and executing it is as, okay, I'm going to cancel the charter. This charter came up for renewal. It was uh, approved by both houses of Congress. It went to the president for his signature, uh, and uh, he had announced he was going to veto it. No one believed he would veto it. At least his opponents didn't believe it, and he vetoed it. And uh, lined up against him were some of the top minds, thinkers, and politicians of the day, Daniel Webster, Henry Clay, um, all were uh, lined up on the side of the bank. And uh, it was certainly a um, act of supreme political will for him to veto in the face of both houses of Congress, 
uh, passing the uh, legislation enabling a renewal of the charter. So that part, uh, standing in the face of of those uh, who might even have principled arguments against you, if your principle is to uh, not renew the charter um, in the face of uh, a lot of foes, that I think really speaks to a, a type of strength that we have really not talked about uh, enough in this podcast. Well, I, I think that's right. And um, you know, I think the, the context there is, is also important, though, um, in that the charter had not expired. And right. so the, the move was for an early renewal of the charter, specifically because they felt that with the upcoming presidential election, they could cow Jackson. Right. Um, and so it's, it was a direct challenge, really, to him to, to live up to his word, and they, they picked the wrong opponent. So for those who might not uh, recall the two terms of Andrew Jackson, the time frame we're talking here uh, is uh, 1828 for his first term and his re-election in uh, 1832. Uh, right. So we're talking sort of 1830 time frame. Passes, passes both houses of uh, Congress at the time. Richard's absolutely right. They, uh, the, his opponents thought that they could get this early uh, renewal of the charter through and force his political hand. And not only did Jackson hold firm, but I think he had a larger uh, number, uh, certainly uh, larger raw number of votes and a wider um, electoral college win his second term uh, that uh, he was elected in 1832. Uh, that led to uh, the other thing that I really recall from the, the Jackson administration, which was the nullification crisis. And uh, I don't think we probably have time to really go into at length what caused the nullification crisis. Nevertheless, it really was a crisis, and it was a crisis around federal government power versus states' rights power. And here, uh, you, you might have thought that Jackson uh, would favor states' rights, uh, based upon his views in the uh, Bank of America charter crisis. Nevertheless, uh, Jackson um, stood firm for the Union, and he stood firm against uh, uh, the other of the great politicians of the mid or early 18th century, excuse me, 19th century, John C. Calhoun, uh, and the state of South Carolina, uh, firmly that he would not uh, allow them to nullify federal laws. So, uh, many saw this as a precursor or at least an opening salvo, which led to the uh, Civil War. But uh, the nullification crisis was equally as big a crisis as the banking crisis. And uh, where I studied uh, history, it was uh, viewed as a much higher crisis. Well, and uh, um, I think that the people who look at it as a prelude to the Civil War may be looking at it wrong, that it, it really may have postponed the Civil War for over two decades, right? Um, which, in some contexts, I think is is a, is a victory. Um, I was looking at my notes for something else that struck me when you were talking about the veto of the bank charter, and it was how Jackson changed the role of the presidency completely into one where the president took a, a major role in shaping public policy, really for the first time. Um, Washington established the principle of sort of a disinterested chief executive. Um, so maybe it was shifting over time, but in the first 39 years of America's existence, there were a total of nine vetoes uh, by presidents of legislation, and Jackson vetoed 12 bills in eight years. So uh, I, th I think we're looking at a real sea change in the active type of leadership. Um, 
And I think that I think that's probably related directly to his personality that you've been discussing. So uh, I have to note that um, for all you history buffs out there, you will recall that Andrew Jackson is the only American president who was ever held as a prisoner of war. So uh, held as a prisoner by the British in the Revolutionary War. But the other things that Jackson brings to the table, and frankly, um, people talk about today in light of the current administration, was that uh, even though uh, Donald Trump was probably not a self-made man, uh, Andrew Jackson certainly was. And uh, he was the first president from what was then considered the West. And he um, utilized the core constituencies he had from what we now call the people uh, to build a political party and to build, build enough momentum to take him almost uh, to the very cusp of the presidency in 1824, but certainly to the presidency in 1828 and again in 1832. So Jackson was really the, the first American presidential example of someone who pulled himself up from his bootstraps and achieved uh, not so much fame, but certainly greatness um, in a way that uh, many other, was not available in many other countries at that time. I think that's a great point. And yeah, he did achieve fame as a result, uh, in particular of his service in the in the War of eighteen twelve. But um, but yeah, I think it's the fact that he was able to rise so high um, is is remarkable. Um, I think he was also the only president who's known to have murdered someone. I think that was a duel. <laughs> I'm not quite sure I would call that a murder, but uh, you know, you're um, uh, what. Well, uh, uh, my somewhat uh, flippant reference on Davy Crockett, and I tend to think about the Indian Wars that Jackson was involved in, but he was, uh, you're absolutely right about his role in the War of 1812 and his defense at the um, Battle of New Orleans. Uh, we really haven't taken a look at leadership lessons from his uh, military career, but if I could uh, kind of delve into that from his uh, Indian Wars and certainly from the uh, Battle of New Orleans were two things that struck me uh, from my studies of him. The first was that he utilized the the ground, the physical aspect of the layout uh, in the areas south of New Orleans as a as a huge defensive area, and he forced the British into uh, marching across essentially a marsh uh, where they had inflating fields of fire and just cut down the British. Um, you know, perhaps that. Somewhat was due to the, the the way the British Army operated in uh, 1815 or 1814, but uh, nevertheless, in that war, he used uh, geography as a defensive mechanism offensively. In the Indian Wars, he had to be much more creative because the Indians obviously were much more fluid, even if the battles were fought in places uh, no longer remembered in Alabama, such as Horseshoe Bend. And uh, as with, unfortunately, most Indian Wars, the fighting tended to be savage, uh, and he was, uh, most of the time, had superior forces, and he brought that superior force to bear. And he utilized superior force in a way uh, that he did not, was not able to bring in the Battle of New Orleans. So uh, from my limited recall of his military leadership, he, he used a wide variety of tactics that uh, we all recognize today, but he was not uh, tied to one specific tactic. No, I think that's fair, but I think the other thing that you have to look at is the type of forces he was dealing with, which tended to be irregular yes. uh, militias. Um, it's certainly an unbelievable mix in, in the force that defended New Orleans, and yet somehow he was able to weld them into a cohesive unit. And again, some of that comes down to his force of personality. 
his focus, his charisma. Um, and I guess we haven't we haven't talked really about how how to develop charisma, or if one can. I'm going to have you lead that podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, you know his military career is remarkable in, in many ways. Um, regardless of, of how you feel about the uh, the Indian Wars and the, uh, especially the, the pro-slavery aspects of the Seminole Wars. But neither here nor there, I guess. So this one's been fun, and I'm looking forward to see what we can develop in the, the rest of the Presidential Leadership Series. Well, great. I look forward to it too, Tom. Well, until next time, it's 12 o'clock high. Thank you. This is Paris Fox again. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 12 o'clock high a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and rate the podcast. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.